Abino Marcano, Nacto Modim Lahabish for Cola Brochoche, Nacto Kibalimha, Anna Adonai, Tispokro Rechecha Aleno, the Bagasdeha Abati Tak at the Namshalano of the Federal Vareja. Tenlano Abalo Raklishma, Abagamken La Assot, the Fimashakatu Bedvareja, and Nacto Mevakshima to Rima Eli, Besem Yeshua Hamashiach, Yeshua Adoneno, Beshmo, and Nacto Mid Palelim, Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your goodness and blessings. We ask that your spirit would be upon us now and that you'd open our eyes and our hearts to the glory and the meaning of your word. More than this, Father, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We ask these things believing in the name of the one who saved us, Jesus the Messiah, in his name we pray. Amen. Hebrews, good enough for King David, good enough for me, right? I've been asked to do an introduction on a book in Hebrew called Breshit, Breshit, known in English as Genesis. It's interesting that different countries call these books by different names. German people, they say, Ein Moshe, Zwei Moshe, Drei Moshe, First, Second, Third Moses for the Pentateuch. Here you say Genesis. Well, in the original Hebrew, the names of the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the Torah, are the first words of the first verse. Breshit, in the beginning. Exodus, Shemot, these are the names. Okay. Ve'yikra, uh, Leviticus, and God called. Um, Deuteronomy, these are the things. Dvarim, Dvarim, and Deuteronomy. And in the wilderness, Be'midbar, Be'midbar. The original Hebrew names, as the text was written, are the first words of the first verse of each, each of the five books. Now, I want to just look at this as the way <clears throat> the early church, particularly a Jewish Christian in the first century, would look at these books. They'd look at things in a structural manner. They would eventually say by the end of the first century, by the time the book of Revelation was written, <clears throat> that, well, you've got the Torah in the Old Testament. And then you've got a Pentateuch, five books in the New Testament, the four Gospels and Acts which is Luke part 2. So we got the five and the five. And the way that the prophets explain the Torah, the letters to the church epistles, they explain the Gospels. And they would say, you have apocalyptic, the book of Daniel and things of this nature, Zechariah and so forth, Ezekiel in the Hebrew scriptures, but you have apocalyptic, the book of Revelation in the New Testament. So to them, the Bible is a loaf of bread. A loaf of bread straight out of a baker's oven, unsliced as yet, and it looks the same on both ends. It looks the same on both ends. For instance, well, Genesis, Revelation. Revelation in Hebrew is called Chazon Yochanan, the vision of John, apocalypsis in Greek, an unveiling. Well... Let's see. You got the vision of Joseph with the woman and the stars in Genesis. You got that in Revelation chapter 12. Looks the same. And your brother's blood cries out. Abel's martyrdom. Then you've got the blood of the martyrs in Revelation crying out for justice in Revelation chapter 6. You got the dragon and the serpent in Revelation. The obviously serpent 
was at least a biped or a quadruped before it was cursed. I don't believe dinosaurs became extinct 65 million years ago. In fact, I've seen Kamada dragons, which I'm convinced are the last remaining species of dinosaurs, and uh, I'd like to take a Darwinist and throw him over the fence with one of those critters. After that thing finished its lunch, he wouldn't believe they became extinct 65 million years ago. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. They look like little dinosaurs, only they're not that little. And what's amazing about them is parthenogenesis. They are auto-fertilizing. They can reproduce without, <laughs> without sexual reproduction. It's all internal. Quite a thing. A lot to be said about that in itself and why it is that way. The dragon and the serpent are in Revelation. You've got the both. Remember, the serpent is Satan, the seducer. The serpent beguiled the woman. The dragon is the persecutor. Satan comes in two forms, the dragon and the serpent. But in Revelation, woe to you, the dragon and serpent are cast down to you. The church will face persecution and internal seduction simultaneously at the close of the age before Jesus comes. There will be persecution and internal seduction of the church in apostasy simultaneously. The dragon and the serpent are in Revelation. The dragon and the serpent, therefore, were in Genesis, or conversely, Genesis, then Revelation. Yeah, Genesis, you got the 12 sons of Jacob, right? Genesis 49 and so forth. And then you've got the 12 tribes of Israel and Revelation 7, Revelation 14. It looks like a loaf of bread. I can go on and on with this. But it looks like a loaf of bread, the same on both ends. The author of Revelation, of course, was the Apostle John, I'm convinced. Most conservative evangelicals are. He authored it during the persecution of Diocletian at the end of the first century. But he also wrote the Gospel of John. So you cut the loaf of bread in half, and you have John's gospel. And in the middle, you see it, John and Revelation. But then, let's cut it in half again between Genesis and the gospels. Look with me, please, to Proverbs chapter 8. Jesus is our wisdom. Sophia in Greek, chokhmah in Hebrew. Chokhmah. And we see what it says. Let's begin in verse 22 of Proverbs 8, please. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old, from everlasting I was established. The Messiah was preexistent. From the beginnings, from the earliest times of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed the circle on the face of the deep, when he made the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, 
when he set for the sea its boundaries so the water would not transgress his command when he marked out the foundations of the earth. I was next to him as a master workman. I was his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, having my delight in the sons of men. Now, when man fell, something happened. You've got the cosmos, right? You've got the, you've got the world and the earth. There's nothing wrong with the earth, but the earth in its fallen state is the world, is the world, okay? And having my delight in the sons of men, now therefore, O sons, listen to me. Remember, God wanted to delight in us. Some attribute this to angelic beings, but it's speaking to humans. Therefore, sons, listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways, Heed my instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. This is messianic prophecy in the wisdom literature. It's about Jesus. But he who sins against me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Those who hate Jesus love death. So we see Jesus as the active agent of God in the creation. Even rabbinic Judaism acknowledged this, but they give twisted, Kabbalistic, occult, mystical misinterpretations of it. So we connect Genesis with John. The pastor read it. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Greek, anarchekaihologoth. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. The Word was with God, the Word was God, and the world was made through him. God made the world through Jesus. Jesus is divine. He's the Father's agent of creation, and he's the Father's agent of new creation. The early Christians would have associated Genesis with revelation, God declares the end from the beginning. But they, you see the tree of life in Genesis. The Eitzhayim, you see it in Revelation, don't you? It ends like it begins. But they also would have associated Genesis with the Gospel of John. And they would have connected the two with Proverbs 8. Does everybody understand? This is how the early Christians would have thought of it. And so this Jewish believer in the first century, he reads John's Gospel, which is a first century document. We have first century fragments of it, including the famous decent text, which is in England. And we have Breshit, Genesis. Okay. Well, he would have said the following. God walks the earth in the creation. Adam heard God walking in the garden. That was a Christophany. It was Jesus. The Father never appears in human form. The Spirit never appears in human form. The Son does. Prepare thou a body for me. Although the incarnation of Christ was special, for want of a better term, it did not set a precedent. 
Jesus appeared multiple times in, in, in fleshments of Christ in the Old Testament called Christophanes. The angel of the Lord, who the rabbis called the Metatron, but they misinterpreted it. The one who wrestled with Jacob at Peniel, the brook of Jabbok, that was Jesus. Melchizedek, Melchizedek, that was Jesus. When Adam heard God walking in the garden, that was Jesus. God walks the earth in the creation in Genesis. God walks the earth in the new creation in John's Gospel. John is different than the synoptics. It's written differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's written from a different perspective. The author of John's Gospel is the author of the book of Revelation. For the sake of brevity, I won't go into it, but John's epistles also come into play. John's epistles talk about things in Revelation, don't they? That would later be in Revelation. Like little children, it's the last hour, the Antichrist is coming. So just as you cut it open in the middle and have John's Gospel, Genesis, John's Gospel, Revelation, then you cut between Genesis and John's Gospel to Proverbs 8, then you cut between John's Gospel and Revelation, you have the Yohanan epistles, John's epistles. You've got to see them structurally. So it comes Genesis, Proverbs 8, John's Gospel, John's epistles, particularly 1 John, and then Revelation 5. It follows the same structure. It follows the same Pentateuchal structure. And it's about Jesus from beginning to end. Of course, in the Old Testament, he was not known as Jesus, but he's the eternal Son of God. So he would have said, God walks the earth in the creation. God walks the earth in the new creation. And he would have said, God separates the light from dark in the creation. So now God separates the light from dark in the new creation. The people in darkness saw great light. The darkness did not comprehend or overcome it. The word Scotia, get Scotland from it. Romans called it dark, a dark place. Separates the light from dark. In the creation, there's the small light and the great light. Hence, in John's Gospel, in the new creation, there's the small light, Yohanan Hamatbil, better known as John the Baptist, small light, and Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the great light. The moon has no light of its own, it only reflects the light of the sun. John had no light of his own, it only reflects the light of Christ. Now there's more to the moon than that. The church has no light of its own, we only reflect the light of Jesus. The sun and moon will not give their light at the close of the age, but I don't want to digress. But it is in Revelation. Well, let's look. What you see in the creation has a reversal in Revelation, don't you? It has a reversal. Let there be light, then when the Antichrist comes, let there be dark. So God walks the earth in the creation, he walks the earth in the new creation. Separates the light from dark in the creation, separates the light from dark in the new creation. Small light, great light in the creation, small light, great light 
in the new creation. God does a miracle with water in the creation. What day does that happen? Well, Genesis tells us, but so does John's Gospel. Turn with me, please, to the wedding of Cana, when Jesus begins his ministry. On the third day, John 2, verse 1, on the third day, God does a miracle with water in the creation. God does a miracle with water in the new creation. Jesus began his ministry at the wedding of Cana. God begins his first plan for mankind with a wedding, with a marital union. Adam, Bahava, Adam and Eve. God's first plan for mankind commences with the wedding. God's second plan for mankind begins with a wedding. Jesus had to launch his ministry at a wedding. Again, in Genesis, you see the Eitz Hayim, the tree of life. Okay. But Jesus, in John 1, Nathaniel says, how do you know? And Jesus tells Nathaniel, not Taniel, who was from Cana, he tells Nathaniel, because I saw you under the fig tree. Now understand, in Judaism, Judaism was now corrupted by the rabbis, but scriptural Judaism. Judaism, the tree of life is represented or is a fig tree. A fig tree. You understand? Those whom he foreknew. If you're born again, it's because Jesus saw you under the fig tree. He saw me under the fig tree. He knew us from the creation, from the foundation of the world. Jesus, how do you know me? Because I saw you under the fig tree. He's eternal God. I saw you under the fig tree. Now, there's a lot we can say about the fig tree. It's very, very important, particularly in prophecy. Remember, in Revelation, the fig leaves are for the healing of the nations, aren't they? Revelation says the fig leaves are for the, tree, leaves are for the healing of the nations. Okay. Leaves are figures of good works. Jesus cursed the fig tree because it was not yet the season for figs. It was only leaves. The Son of Man comes at an hour you do not expect. In the Middle East, and I've lived in Israel for years. My children are born there. The leaves cover the figs. No leaves. The sun will burn the fruit up and destroy it. You need the leaves. But the leaves are not what's edible. He comes looking for the fruit. But you need the leaves. Faith without works is dead. You understand? Now when man fell, what did Adam and Eve do? Nakedness did not mean the beach in Maui. Or a California suntan. Nakedness meant not having the garments of salvation. As we said last night, Yesha, Atani. 
What did Adam and Eve try to do? Sow fig leaves together. Fallen man will always try to justify himself with good works. They will sow leaves together to try to cover up our fallen state. The church of Laodicea did not know it was naked. The last church is going to be so lukewarm it will be oblivious, blind to its true spiritual state before the Lord comes. It doesn't matter what religion it is. Take your pick. It could be a Muslim going on the Hajj. It could be a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon knocking on doors. It could be a Catholic going on a pilgrimage to Fatima or Lourdes. It doesn't matter. Take your pick. Whatever religion you want, Orthodox Jews doing the mitzvot and man-made commandments. Every religion is people sowing fig leaves together, trying to justify themselves by works. You understand? God said no. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. There had to be a blood sacrifice. In the day you sin, you shall die. There had to be death. A picture of the death of the Messiah, and then he covered them with the skins of the animals. Again, figures of the garments of salvation. Fig leaves don't save. Who is going to go to a haberdashery shop and spend good money on fig leaves? That's crazy. That's stupid. Religion is crazy and stupid. You're going to go to a top shop and pay money for leaves? That's what they're doing. So you got the tree of life in the creation. And man was banned from it, remember? But in Revelation, come on, eat it. We are given re-access to the tree of life. The fruit is the fruit of the Spirit, the divine nature manifested in Christ. Adam and Eve had a choice. They could eat of the world, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or they could eat of the tree of life. Understand the difference. There is to know and to know. Ladat, ladat in Hebrew, ganasko in Greek, to know experientially, intimately. Adam and Eve were put in the garden and the serpent was there and they were told to subdue it. God always wanted to conquer Satan through man. Unfortunately, as we sang Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress, says, Oh God, the only man who's going to slay Satan is going to be Jesus. The first Adam failed. The second Adam does not fail. There's only two generic men. When you're born, you're born of Adam. When you're born again, you're born of Christ. It's only two generic men. Or women. Only two. Okay. So we got this. So why does Jesus curse that fig tree? Israel had to work righteousness based on the law. Jesus was looking for the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> Again, there's nothing wrong with the leaves. They're necessary. Faith without works is dead. 
But he's looking for the fruit. Looking for the fruit. How much like my son are you? That's what he's going to ask. He's not going to say, where's the leaves? He knows that if he didn't have leaves, there'd be no fruit. But he wants to see the fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. This is our challenge. And our opportunity. That's why he cursed the fig tree. Now the fig tree has further meaning about the return of Christ, but that's not our subject today. So you got the tree in Genesis, you got the tree in Revelation. You got the miracle with water, third day. Miracle with water, third day. Wedding in Genesis and creation. Wedding in John's Gospel, new creation. In Genesis and the creation, the Spirit moved on the face of the water, remember? And brought forth the creation. In John's Gospel and the new creation, the Spirit born of water and of Spirit. The Spirit brings forth the new creation. As we looked at last night, the eclinctic. The conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit moves on the water and brings forth the creation. Spirit moves on the water and brings forth the new creation. Notice all three persons of the Godhead are involved in the creation. All three are involved in the new creation. Okay? All three are in the Torah, the Old Testament Pentateuch. All three are in the Gospels, the New Testament Pentateuch. All three. Okay. Well, it goes on. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. We're imagio dei beings. Some of you know, we are tripartite. We have a body, a soul, and a spirit. Because we're made in his image and likeness. Of Christ, prepare thou a body for me. Even in the Old Testament, as we've noted, Jesus appears in physical form. We have a body because God does. We have a spirit because God does. Animals don't have spirits. They have a soul, but not a spirit. And we have a soul because God does. Soul's mind, consciousness. Who has known the mind of the Father the intellect, the will. We reflect the Father, the Son, and we reflect the Spirit. We're made in His image and likeness. Now there's a lot more to this, and it's illustrated by temple typology, but we're not going there today for the sake of brevity. Teachings are on our website, should you be so inclined. But God is tripartite, so he makes us tripartite beings. You see it in Genesis. You see it in John's Gospel. As we looked at last night, very briefly, God breathed on Adam. He became a living soul. In the creation, God breathed on man. Became a living soul. John chapter 20, verse 22 after his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus breathed on the apostles. 
At that point, they were born again. They were regenerate. They became new creations. Creation, new creation. Genesis, John. Old Testament Pentateuch, New Testament Pentateuch. It all adds... Just think of an equation if you like mathematics. It's got to balance exactly right. The Jews thought about the scriptures very, very mathematically. Very mathematically. And they, they, they used things like gematria and things and isopsophy and things. But, the, the, of course, it was an alphanumeric language. Their digits did not exist. They used letters for numbers. And they knew the numerical value of every single verse of every single book. You pick any verse, Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 9, they would know hypothetically that the mathematical value had to be 15,652. If it added up to 651 or 653, they knew there was a mistake. That's what you see in Jeremiah 36, the scribe's knife. They have to cut the scroll and make the correction. They use mathematics to guarantee accuracy of transmission. They had a very mathematical approach to Scripture. Everything had to add up. It all added up. In the ancient world, literacy and numeracy, education generally, but even basic literacy and numeracy, were for royalty, pagan priesthoods, military commanders, aristocracy, and nobility. For the Hebrews, not so. The Levites had to make sure every Jew was literate and numerate. Every Jew had to be able to read the Word of God, and every Jew had to be arithmetically competent to practice their faith. They had to be literate and numerate to practice their faith. Education has always been emphasized in the Jewish community to this day. In the book of Acts, when it says they perceived the apostles were uneducated men, they were uneducated by Jewish standards. By the standards of the Gentile world, they were quite educated. 25% of the Roman Empire were slaves. Hardly any of them could read. Some could, not many. They had to be literate numerate. That is why when the young boy was born blind in, in John 9, they thought he was accursed. Who sinned, him or his parents? One of the maladies that would have been seen as a curse or a judgment from God was blindness because you couldn't read the Torah. You couldn't read the Scripture. You couldn't participate in temple worship. You were excluded from the community of worship. Okay. What they didn't understand, of course, in John 9 was we're all blind. Until Jesus opens our eyes, he came that those who see would become blind. The people who should have known better and that those who are blind would see. So we see this relationship between Genesis and Revelation. It says the same thing. You see it in Genesis. You see it in Revelation. You see it in Genesis. You see it in John's Gospel. It's the same things. The fig tree, the third day, the miracles, the moving of the Spirit, the separating light from dark, the great light and the small light, the breathing and bringing a creation and a new creation, and so on and so on. Again, there's more to it than this. We'd have to have a Bible study that would be too long for a Sunday morning. 
probably a two or three part Bible study, at least two parts. But let's look. That is how the early Christians would have seen this. They would have seen the Pentateuch and they would have seen the New Testament opening like the Old Testament with the Pentateuch. They would have seen it. They would have interpreted Revelation in light of John's Gospel. And they would have interpreted Genesis in light of Revelation and John's Gospel. They would have seen Genesis as a foreshadow of the Messianic redemption. That is how the early Christians would have looked at it before Christianity morphed into a religion with the church fathers. Again, I digress. Well, let's talk a little bit about the nature of the scriptures themselves when we approach Genesis, as you will be doing. Jesus was fully human and fully divine. He wasn't 50-50. He was 100% human and he's 100% divine. The concept of 50-50 was Greek. That was Hercules, the mythical Greek redeemer. His father was Zeus, which is a corruption of the Greek Theos, God. And they, instead of Mount Zion, they had Mount Olympus, didn't they? And Hercules' mother in Greek mythology was human. He had a human mother, but a divine father. Okay. Hercules was 50-50. No, no, no. No, no. It's not Mount Olympus. It's Mount Zion on the sides of the north where the temple was. And Jesus was not 50-50. He was 100 and 100. <laughs> okay. Fully human and fully divine. Right from the book of Genesis, the scripture is fully human and fully divine. The Pentateuch, in this case the book of Genesis, it is 100% the word of Moses. And it is 100% the word of God. It's not 50-50. It was not like this woman who just died last week who wrote that crazy book, Jesus Calling. What an absurd book. She practiced channeling. She practiced, it was basically it's the same as a Ouija board. It's all mystical. What a piece of garbage. And it sold over 40 million copies, and they're really going to cash it now that she snuffed it. Unbelievable. It wasn't like that. It was not automatic writing. It was inspiration. Luke was a physician, and he was a Syrophoenician convert to Judaism. So take Luke. Luke emphasized things like explaining to Gentiles things that Jews would have known, that Jewish believers would have known. Okay, And he had an acute interest in the healing miracles of Jesus from a medical perspective. He looked upon these things with a clinical eye. You see the human character in the author. You can see that. You can see that. That's just one example, of course. But you can see that. Okay, well, Moses was the same. Moses was a prince of Egypt. And he was educated in the wisdom of Pharaoh before he was educated in the wisdom of God. 
Paul knew the Greco-Roman culture, didn't he? Jesus knew everything. And Moses knew the Egyptian culture. Christians are never called to be naive concerning the world. We are to be innocent as a dove, but shrewd as a serpent. The serpent beguiled the woman. Satan is a seducer, a deceiver. We are to understand the nature of spiritual deception and seduction. Paul warned the Corinthians, I fear that the way that the serpent seduced Eve, he's going to seduce you. We are called to be wise as a serpent, innocent. My father was a police detective near New York City, just opposite New York, New York City. And when the police recruited police officers to be detectives, they had all these tests and evaluations. And they wanted guys who had a few years' experience as ordinary policemen, but they did something different. They taught them to think like criminals. <laughs> How would you break into this house? <laughs> How would you break into this car? They would teach them to read body language, to watch somebody. You could see, I'm telling there's cops in New York and Chicago that are sharp. They could watch on a day off drinking a cup of coffee in the diner and see a guy on a corner, and they're going to say, that guy's going to break into that car. <laughs> it's just like a medical doctor gets so experienced, he can see the symptoms before he even talks to the patient, and he knows what's wrong with them. And 85% of the time, he or she are right. They just call it. There's cops like that. They, you just call it. You learn to think. Like the criminal. <laughs> if you can't think like a criminal, you can be a policeman, but you can't be a detective. You have to know how they operate. We are called to be the same. There's to know and to know. Adam and Eve were to know there was evil. The serpent was in the garden. They were to know it was evil. There was evil. They were to know it objectively. They were not to know it subjectively. They were to know it existed, but they were not to know it experientially. A detective knows how to break into a car or pull a bank job, but he's not going to do it. He just knows how to do it. Same thing. Innocent as a dove, wise as a serpent. The enemy is subtle. Well, it all goes back to Genesis. A lot of things went wrong with the fall of man. A lot of things. God gave certain aspects of his divine nature to men and certain to women. That is why women are double X and men are XY, chromosomally. No matter what they tell you, there's no such thing as a transgender person. Chromosomally, they don't exist. 
but in the age of science, we're supposed to throw science out the window. This has a lot to do with the book of Genesis. Let's look at this issue of Genesis and science briefly. Okay. My wife is a math teacher with a minor in chemistry, but math chemistry. And she is a special teacher for autistic and Asperger's children who are mathematically very gifted, even prodigious, but can't tie their bootlace. She says, uh, you have to get into their world. I said, that should be easy for you. They don't play with a full deck and you don't either. But anyway, <laughs> I have the distinct honor of being married to the only mathematician in the world who can't balance a checkbook. But let's not, hope you're not recording this. <laughs> I can't live with her and I can't live without her. Crazy Jew drives me nuts, but God forbid I should ever lose her. She has a different prayer. <laughs> anyway, she's, my wife is quite clever in her field, in, in math. She's, but she also has a degree in biblical Hebrew and Jewish history. Some guys marry good cooks, I marry the concordance. What are you going to do? <laughs> Wife's supposed to be a helpmeet, I marry the concordance. If I want a good meal, I'll go out to eat. <laughs> if I want somebody to explain the complexities of a Hebrew text, I'll ask my wife. So, here's my wife. And my daughter is a very successful corporate lawyer in a major firm in London. Not boasting about my family, but the women in my family, most of them are educated women. And I have assisted well-to-do financially and things like this. All right, not that that matters of itself, but they are intelligent women. But they're still women. My wife teaches Bible studies with the knowledge of Biblical Hebrew. Now, she may explain a Hebrew text to a mixed congregation, but she will only teach doctrine to women. Only women. Only women. Ah, something happened. Because of the fall in Genesis... Men have become insensitive and women have become hypersensitive. My apologies to those who know this. Men are thick. They just don't get it. When a husband and wife get saved, if the husband gets saved first, not always, but most of the time, the wife eventually gets saved. Sometimes very quickly. Water will take the shape of its container. But there are some very godly women who've gotten saved who go through decades of life with an unsaved husband. Decades. Why is that? Because men are insensitive. When a husband and wife pray for direction, it is usually the wife who hears from the Lord first and clearest. It is a very foolish man that does not give careful weight to the counsel of a praying wife. That is P-R-A-Y-I-N-G. 
Not the hypergamous, P-R-E-Y-I-N-G. <laughs> Men do not give weight to the counsel of a nagging wife. That turns guys right off. But a praying wife, he who finds a wife finds a good thing from the Lord. If God has given you a praying wife, she's your number one counselor. You listen to her before you listen to anybody else. That's the way it is. Why? Because men are insensitive. Men are reliant on female sensitivity. Women have the opposite problem. They are hypersensitive. While it's easier for women to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, it is also easier for women to hear the voice of a counterfeit spirit and be deceived by the enemy. Women are much, much more vulnerable to spiritual seduction. The way I describe it, because of the fall in Genesis, the male antenna is too long. No, the male antenna is too short. The female antenna is too long. Men just don't get the signal too easily. But when they get it, it's usually the right one. Women, however, they can pick up any signal. They can even pick up two contradictory signals at the same time, and don't ask me how, but they even make sense of it even though it makes no sense. That is why leadership is male. Male leadership is protective. Men are reliant on female sensitivity. Women are reliant on male protection. That is the way it is. One antenna is too long. One antenna is too short because of sin not just personal sin, the homotosphere, the fallen nature of the world, sin of man, sin of Adam. One antenna is too long, the other too short. But if you put them both together in Christ, you can get some great reception. You have a great reception. Yes, that's right. Holy matrimony is to redeem to the degree possible to the limited degree possible in this fallen world, the original relationship God wanted with Adam and Eve before we fell. Now it will be fully restored with the return of Christ, but right now it is only restored to a limited degree. Nonetheless, that is it. That's what happens in Genesis. Now, of course, the feminism of the world wants to destroy this because the feminism of the world is governed by Satan. When you see women pastors, when you see these crazy women teaching false doctrines, some of them are nuts. Beth Moore and the, the Joyce Might, these women are they're off the wall. Whose fault is it? It is the fault of the men for not taking responsibility and being a loving and protective authority God has called them to be. Oh, those women are wrong! Eve fell first, but when Jesus came into that garden, he said, Adam, Adam. He didn't say Eve, Eve. Adam, where are you? Oh, who's the woman? I'm talking to you, Jack. Ha! 
Husband and father, it may not be your fault, but it's your problem. Otherwise, don't get married. Now, once that headship is reversed, society will disintegrate and the church will disintegrate. And it is disintegrating because they don't understand what happened in the book of Genesis. God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness again, imagio dei. They shall become one flesh. Achad, achad. In biblical Hebrew, the number one, as in the numeral, was yachid, yachid. But a rabbi named Rambam, Maimonides, in the Middle Ages, changed the number one to Achad. Achad did not mean one in the scripture, in the ancient Hebrew. It meant oneness. Adam and Eve shall be oneness because we're made in God's image and likeness. There are two things that we see in Genesis, reflecting God's nature in us. The first, we've looked at body, soul, and spirit, being tripartite. The second, holy matrimony. The Hebrew idiom, you see this like in the book of, of Ruth, for consummating a marriage. Niknas ba, niknas ba. And he went into her, and the Lord allowed her to conceive. One person goes inside of another, and a third is procreated. It's one in three. It is three in one. Why? Because that reflects the triune nature of God. You understand? In birth, you have three people involved. In second birth, you got three people involved. It always fits the pattern. It always adds up mathematically. Always. And it goes right to Genesis. That's where it comes from. So they asked Jesus the greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment? And he said, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Achad Baruch Shem Kvodo Umachuto Leolam Ba'ed Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is oneness. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Okay. Oneness. Satan hates oneness. The Hebrew term is achdut. Achdut, oneness, because it reflects the nature of God. Satan will ultimately try to counterfeit it. With Satan, the Antichrist and false prophet, he will ultimately attempt, with some degree of temporary success, to mimic the Trinity. Again, a related but different subject than we have today. Achad, achdut. Most of what you see happening today and what Satan is doing to society and doing with some degree of success among Christians is an attack on Achdut. 
God hates divorce, it says in Malachi. Why? It's detrimental to the children, yes. It's detrimental to society, yes. It's detrimental to families, yes. But what underscores that? The eternal oneness of the Godhead. The permanency of a Christian marriage is to reflect and testify to the eternal union of the Godhead. None of us want to, be remem- want to be reminded of our most painful memory. None of us want to be reminded of our most painful memory. And God made us like that to teach us that he does not like being reminded of his. What is God's most painful memory? When God became a man, and Jesus came and took our sin to give us his righteousness. When he died our death to give us his life. Something happened within the Trinity. He gave up the ghost. My God, why have you forsaken me? The eternal achtut of God's own divine nature was interrupted because God cannot look upon sin and Jesus who had no sin took ours. He turned his back on his screaming son being tortured in our place. That's God's most painful memory. Turning his back on his son. My God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani in Aramaic. Why have you forsaken me, Father? That's God's most painful memory. When there's a divorce, it reminds God of his most painful memory. The scriptural grounds for divorce and remarriage are very, very, very narrow. When I was first saved in the 70s, I never heard of two born-again Christians getting divorced. I didn't know anybody like that. I didn't know anybody who knew anybody like that. I knew of people who were divorced and remarried before they got saved. I knew people who got saved and their unsaved husband or unsaved wife took off with somebody and left them. That I knew. That, that happened. But two believers getting divorced and remarried? That was unthinkable. They're living in adulterous marriages in the eyes of Christ. Yet you've got preachers and pastors doing it now. It's an attack on the Akdut that we see in Genesis. Non-therapeutic abortion. Again, where abortions are clinically warranted, like ectopic pregnancy or something like that. They're medically, statistically very, very minute. You're going to kill your baby? God says, I had to kill my baby. I had to kill my baby so you wouldn't have to go to hell. You're reminding me of what happened when I had to kill my baby. It was the will of the Lord to smite him. It was an attack on Achtut. It reminds him of something that he doesn't like being reminded of. Achtut. Now if you did that before you were a Christian, the blood of Christ cleanses of all sin. Don't be haunted by the guilt. These people, these people pushing this, and oh my God, and it, 
obviously as believers we don't believe in any kind of extramarital sexual conjugation but even if that were not the case with the birth control that exists why would you kill a baby as a form of birth control why would you terminate a human life as a form this is satanically orchestrated attack on Akdut to have Akdut requires Adam and Eve it doesn't work with Adam and Steve That's what's in back of this stuff you see now. It's all an attack on Akdut. Remember in Proverbs 8, he wanted to take his delight in the sons of men. He wanted to create us in his image and likeness and make, the same as the son was his agent of creation, he wanted us to be agents of procreation to populate heaven. That's what he wanted. Back to Genesis. Well, let's look at it. There's good creation science and there's bad creation science. There's no good Darwinism, it's all garbage. But there's good creation science and bad creation science. Remember, I said. Jesus is fully human and fully divine. The Word of God is both fully human and fully divine. Jesus is God in man. The Scripture is the Word of God in the Word of man. Liberal higher critics, liberal theologians, and these guys are real dopes. Who is going to spend six and eight years getting a Ph.D.? to study theology when you don't believe in God. Nobody in their right mind would do a degree in physics if they didn't believe in science. Nobody in their right mind would do a degree in law if they didn't believe in the rule of law. Nobody in their right mind would do a degree in education if they didn't believe in education. Nobody in their right mind would do a degree in medicine if they didn't believe in medical science. Nobody in their right mind would do that. But there's people who will get a PhD in theology who don't even believe in God, and then they'll tell you you're stupid because you do. These places like Yale Divinity School and Harvard, Princeton Divinity, they were founded by believers. They were founded by people who believed the scriptures. Same in England. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's the word of God and the word of man. Okay. Now, God uses different literary genres to teach different truths. You've got Hebrew poetry, Psalms. You've got uh, wisdom literature, Proverbs. You have history, Chronicles. You have biography, Kings. And you have apocalyptic, and you have narratives. Genesis is narrative. It's important to make a distinction between history and historicity. When I was a little boy in New York, New Jersey, New York, I read two books about the American Civil War that were popular with little boys. 
When I got older, I began to read Shelby Foote in my old age, but as a kid, I read a book by a guy called Stephen Crane called The Red Badge of Kerridge. And I read a book uh, by Bruce Catton, The History of the Pictural History of the Civil War. It wasn't a picture book. It had maps and paintings and things like this. It wasn't academic, but it was seriously written. Semi-academic. A kid could understand it. And then there were other accounts of the Civil War of soldiers. Those accounts were true stories. They had historicity. But Selby Foote or Bruce Catton is history. The book of Genesis is not a history book. It is a narrative. It has historicity. In other words, it is a true story. The creation accounts in Genitive and the Tower of Babel accounts, these things are true stories. But they're not written as histories. They're narratives. They are written as the theological interpretation of history. They are written as the doctrinal interpretation of the history. You understand? They're written to interpret the history. They have historicity. They're true. It happened. Jesus spoke of people like Noah and Adam as, as historical figures. They really existed. It's true. True story. But it's not written to give us a history. Again, let's go to John's Gospel, the partner of Genesis, one of them. We are told in John's Gospel, if everything Jesus did was written down, all the books couldn't contain it. Now, it's true in what it says. It's a narrative. It has historicity. John's Gospel is a true story, but it's not the history. It's the interpretation of the history of Jesus' life and ministry. We have to understand that. Be careful of people. And there are some good creationists, but there are also some pretty bad ones. The Darwinists will make a monkey out of a bad creationist. Understand the difference between history and historicity. Verse for verse... The book of Job speaks more about the creation than Genesis does. The book of Job speaks more about the creation than Genesis. More verses about the creation. And Job tells us, at the end of the book of Job, we don't know how God did these things. The purpose of Genesis was not to tell us how God did it, but why he did it. Good creation science requires either a doctrinally cum theologically literate science person 
or a scientifically literate theological person or preacher. You always cut off a Saul's, uh, a Goliath's head with his own sword. I'd say to Darwinists, right away they're going to attack you for believing the Bible. You really believe all these animals run an ark? And... Okay, let's see. Let's see. Well, I can go to a faculty of information science on this university, Berkeley, or anywhere, a major science school, and in the faculty of information science, they will tell you there is no such thing as auto-encryption, even with artificial intelligence. There may be software programs that can write other programs, but somebody had to write the first program. Information cannot come from a vacuum, says information science, which did not exist in the days of Charles Darwin. Information cannot come from a vacuum. The human genome alone, just the human genome, I'm not talking about the zebra genome or the poinsettia genome, or the pumpkin genome, just the human genome, 13 billion lines of coded information. And not just binary. You've got four nucleotides plus uracil with RNA. 13 billion! A very sophisticated computer program might have 100,000 lines <laughs> that are binary. Something more than double the amount of the nucleotides are four, sometimes five. Well, there's one replacement. And there's 13 billion. If information cannot come from a vacuum, where did it come from? It came ex nihilo out of nowhere? That professor over there in information sciences told me that can't happen. You're telling me it did? Now I'm in the faculty of biomedical sciences. You're telling me it came from nothing? But the information scientists say it's impossible. They can't answer questions like that. All they can do is theorize and say stuff that is stupid sometimes. That the earth was seeded by extraterrestrial life. Some of them actually have said that. That goes back to Watson and Crick. Well, where did the flying saucers come from? <laughs> Professing to be wise, they become fools. So we go on, Genesis and science. Don't use Genesis as a science book. Job says we don't know how he did it. Second law of thermodynamics. Entropy, bioentropy, there it is. Things cannot go from a state of disorder into order, except biological systems. Those plants and trees can take things randomly, atmospherically and from the earth, and recycle them and genetically reconfigure them into something that goes from disorder to order. However, to do that, they require DNA that is coded. <laughs> Mutation? 
The only place this thing you're saying happens would be in a bacteriophage, I tell them. Bacteriophage is a virus that attacks itself, attaches itself to a bacteria and then takes the nucleic acids from the cytoplasm of the bacteria and attaches itself to another cell and injects it. But it works to the destruction of the host cell, not to its evolution and development. What do you do with the second law of thermodynamics? Can you please explain it to me? Einstein changed everything. Newtonian physics, half of it went out the window with Einstein, but that didn't. Can you please explain this? No. That is scientific argumentation. They're going to go out the Bible. You go out the science. Then show them the Bible. They're not going to believe the Bible. The Bible is not a science book. It has scientific content. It has things that are scientifically true, but it's not about science. It has historicity. It's historically true, but it's not a history book. Don't misuse it. That's the nature of it. So we see creation. We see theme. We see historicity. Salvation history, theologians like to give philosophical German terms to things, and they call salvation history Heilsgeschichte, Heilsgeschichte. When I'm in Germany, I speak Yiddish, and they look at me like I'm nuts. They understand me, but the <laughs> my German is horrible. It's scientific German from university, theological German from, from seminary, mixed with New York Yiddish, and you put it into a blender and push the button, and that, that, that's my German if you want to be gracious and call it German. Heilsgeschichte. <laughs> Yiddish is uh, Hebrewized German. Heilsgeschichte. It begins in Genesis. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. This goes all the way to Revelation, Genesis 12. Think of the coin, heads and tails, heads and tails. We can distinguish between heads and tails. But we cannot separate them. Abraham is the father of all who believed. He's the anthropological and genetic father of the Jewish and Arab races. And he is the spiritual father of believers. Born-again Jews and born-again Arabs are descendants of Abraham, both by birth and second birth. Everybody understand? The seed of Abraham, Messiah. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Anti-Semitism, hatred of the Jews, and persecution of the church are heads and tails. They are two sides of the same coin. Historically, it goes back to Genesis 3. Salvation was to come from the Jews. The Messiah of the Scripture would come from the Jews. So even in the Old Testament, Pharaoh, Amalek, Haman, the devil was always trying to destroy them. Well, just as the first coming of Christ depended on God's prophetic agenda for Israel and the Jews, the second coming of Christ 
depends on God's prophetic agenda, both for the true church and for Israel. And you've got Hitler, you've got anti-Semitism, you've got radical Islam, this hatred you see of Israel, it's all the same thing. What you see now, the bias in the media against Israel, it all goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Jesus made it clear three times the Jews would have to be back in that land and in Jerusalem for him to return. Luke 21, 24, Zechariah 12, 10, Matthew 23, 39. The Jews have to be there. Satan has to get them out of there. Because they have to be there to say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, barachnu hem mibet Adonai, hodula Adonai kitov kile olam chazdo, hoshana hoshana laben David. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the Vulgate, it's really interesting. Benedictum qui veni in nomine dominum. Jerome knew it in the early centuries of Christianity. They had to be there. Satan says, get him out of there. So, who did the pagan Roman government persecute the most? Circa 70 A.D., or 66 A.D. when Nero murdered Peter and Paul. Born-again Christians and Jews. Who does Islam hate the most? Born-again Christians and Jews. Before the Iron Curtain fell, who did the communists persecute the most? Born-again Christians and Jews. For centuries in their inquisitions, who did the Roman Catholic Church persecute the most? Born-again Christians and Jews. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. If they go after the Jews today, they're coming after the believers tomorrow. And if they go after the believers today, they're going after the Jews tomorrow because it is the devil. That is the beginning of Heilsgeschichte, the promised Savior, the seed of the woman. It moves him in the heel, but he'll raise from the dead. He's going to crush the serpent's head in Revelation 16. Uh, Romans 16. It's always like that. We might almost say, almost say, that the rest of Scripture is foreshadowed in the book of Genesis. In fact, I would say it. The entirety of salvation history is foreshadowed in Genesis, all the way to Revelation. God declares the end from the beginning. So, in your church, as your pastor leads you in Bible study in this forthcoming series, when you study Genesis, remember, you're not just studying what did happen. You are understanding what is happening and you are learning what is going to happen. I'll say it again. As you embark on the study of Breshit of Genesis, you're not just learning what happened. You're understanding what is happening and why. And you're also learning what is going to happen. Genesis and Revelation 
the Lord declares the end from the beginning. I hope this helps you in your forthcoming series. Pastor, God bless. Thank you.